Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SIAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. If you'd like to know more about SIAC's latest activities, click on the links included on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts about Southeast Asia, Check out the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre's podcast series, SIAC Stories, available on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Another great sponsor of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned research centre committed to the study of and engagement with Asia and the Pacific. The Institute's research focuses on politics, security and economic development, emphasising the enhancement of links between businesses, governments and academia. For more information on Griffith Asia Institute's activities, click on their website link on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Welcome to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Michelle Ford, the Director of the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre and co-host of the podcast channel. Today I'm talking to Ben Kirkfleet, Emeritus Professor in the Department of Political and Social Change at the Australian National University. Ben is the author of Speaking Out in Vietnam, Public Political Criticism in a Communist Party-Ruled Nation, published by Cornell University Press in 2019. The book looks at four kinds of oppositional movements in the two decades between 1995 and 2015, a period in which Vietnam's political economy was fundamentally transformed. Among the key arguments the book makes are that the state was reaching far less into the lives of its citizens at the end of this period than at its beginning, and that public political criticism is now very much a prominent feature of the political landscape. Two important secondary arguments pertain to the nature of that criticism and the state's responses to it. In both cases, Ben makes an argument for nuance, recognising that different groups of citizens speak out in different ways and at different levels of intensity but also that the party state responds in ways that range from tolerance to repression, depending on the source and substance of the criticism. I'd like to start by asking what brought you to write this very readable book. In 2001-2002, I was uh, getting close to finishing a manuscript on Vietnam having to do with a historical period in the 1940s through the late 1980s. It was a study of how and why Vietnam in the North collectivized agriculture and then decollectivized agriculture. And as I was finishing that project, I was following or beginning to follow news through the internet or when I was in Vietnam about people doing things out in the open that seemed quite critical. Uh, making statements, uh, even staging some protests, marches and demonstrations. 
as I got closer to finishing that book, which was published in 2005, I became more and more intrigued by these uh, public displays. That book that was published in 2005 had to do with a lot of subtle and uh, behind the scenes, hidden types of protests and commentary by Vietnamese. But what I was seeing in the early 2000s was more evidence of public actions and commentary of expressing dissent and criticism and even anger. So as that continued in uh, the mid 2000s, I decided to get serious about tracking it, collecting material. And I was fortunate to get an ARC grant, which enabled me to hire a part-time research assistant who had previously helped me with that other project. And she and I set about to try to systematically collect material about this emerging evidence of public political criticism in Vietnam. The book deals with four different cohorts, workers, small landholders, anti-Chinese nationalists and pro-democracy activists. Of course, given my own background in labour studies, I was very interested to read the chapter on labour protests. As you point out, a defining feature of socialist states is the claim that they make to represent workers. How has this influenced the claims made by workers and the party state's response in Vietnam? Well, it is important. You're correct. Workers, along with peasants, are, in the eyes of the Vietnamese Communist Party, their two main constituencies. So the way in which workers were being treated and, and the kinds of complaints workers had as the factory, uh, especially foreign-owned factories developed in Vietnam in the 1990s, up until now, those complaints got the attention of authorities. And as that chapter tries to demonstrate, authorities, by and large, in the party and in the government generally, were trying to make some accommodation to workers' concerns. Because that chapter argues uh, there were these thousands of strikes taking place, and all of them uh, were, legally speaking, uh, criminal. That is to say, they were not following the law. They were not done within the law. And yet the party and government authorities did not criminalize the strikers. In rare occasions, only did they come down physically to interrupt or prevent the strikes from continuing. So the strikes were a way for workers to communicate to the managers and owners of the companies, and also uh, indirectly, in many cases, to government officials and to the officials of the sanctioned authorized trade unions. These authorized trade unions did not play a role in organizing the strikes and indeed often tried to prevent them. But when the strikes occurred, um, the trade unions, the leaderships in the local areas often got involved in trying to help the workers come to some agreement and resolve the differences that they had with management. So workers are an important constituent, and that's one reason why I think the party has been fairly responsive and not terribly repressive. The repression against the workers that is most noticeable has been when the workers try to form their own independent organizations. And there, the government has arrested independent labor organizers, uh, harassed others, 
and pretty much clamped down on workers' efforts to organize among themselves. That's changing a little bit now, I think, in the last couple of years. The government seems to even be relaxing to some extent on that front. Then the next chapter deals with peasants and the issue of land grabbing. And in it, you identify two different patterns of protest. Could you explain what these are and why the distinction matters? Uh, Most of the various demonstrations and protests over land that I deal with were fairly small scale, took place within cluster villages where the land uh, was the issue. The protesters were dealing by and large in the initial stages with local authorities. Later, they get involved with trying to address and reach higher up authorities. And also, each one of these hundreds of demonstrations and protests were fairly isolated from one another. So there wasn't a kind of a clustering of demonstrations linking one village to another to another. But the other pattern, the exceptional pattern, was villagers from different parts of the country accumulating, concentrating, coming together in specific areas where authorities, especially higher authorities, could be targeted. And that occurred on a few occasions, and I and that chapter deals with one of them in in and around Ho Chi Minh City in southern Vietnam in 2007, when more than a thousand people from several different villages, different provinces came together, making similar claims for land and compensation for land that was being taken from them, trying to get their voices heard that way. The other type of exceptional situation were uh, some villagers who went out and helped other land protests that were going on in uh, their province or in a neighboring province. And also in some of those cases, the villagers had people coming to help them. Oftentimes, uh, academics or journalists, uh, lawyers from, say, Hanoi to come and, and work with these protesters to make their voices heard, to go to court and take other actions through the legal system. So, Ben, could we say that there are some similarities here in the sense that in both cases, individual protests are not seen as such a threat as the more systematized ones, the larger scale ones? Yes. The differences between the two types of protests, the predominant ones and then the sort of the exceptional ones, has to do with the scale and the degree to which there's interaction. But in terms of what people were demanding, between those who were small scale and those that were larger scale were pretty much the same. They were questioning the legality or the morality of the authorities taking land that these people were farming, that they thought they had a right to continue to farm. And they were also questioning the way in which the land was being taken from them, the low compensation in terms of amount of money and and how that compensation level was being set basically by authorities without any significant involvement of the people whose land whose lands were being uh, confiscated so there were similarities between those two types of protests in terms of what they were demanding but differences in terms of scale and how they went about it that's a very interesting observation The next chapter of the book moved to quite a different kind of oppositional statement, and that's about Chinese encroachment in Vietnam. And of course, this is a hot topic throughout Southeast Asia. 
I was quite shocked to learn reading this chapter that over 2,000 attacks were made against Vietnamese fishers in contested areas of the sea in the decade between 2005 and 2015. Could you please tell us about the different forms of anti-Chinese protests that have taken place and how the party state has responded? Yeah, one of the forms are these fisher folks that you referred to who have been really on the front lines of, in many cases, interaction with uh, Chinese uh, authorities, uh, Chinese Coast Guard, Chinese Marine, and their ships, their vessels. There have been uh, clashes, the vessels of the Chinese running over and smashing fisher folks' boats, which are much smaller and much more vulnerable than these large uh, Chinese vessels. And the fisher folks have not fought back physically, and so far as I'm aware, but what they do is they keep coming back. They'll try different ways of get back to their fishing grounds, which they see as belonging to them and their villages, as well as to Vietnam more generally. They claim this is very much part of the Vietnamese uh, sovereign territory, part of the ocean area that is protected by United Nations Law of the Sea. So that's one way. And then these fisher folks have, over the years, oftentimes been able to get support from other people in Vietnam, from the cities and from neighboring uh, villages to help them recover their losses if they end up losing some of their equipment or their boat, help them with dealing with uh, authorities as the fisher folks try to get authorities to help them to get the Navy to go out and try to protect them, that kind of thing. Another protest has really numerous demonstrations in the cities and as well as some some towns. And those have been going on and off since the mid-2007, 8, 9, 10, up until recent. And they vary in size. And the government's reactions to them has often been at first turning a blind eye or letting it happen. Then sometimes if the demonstrations go for too long or become too large, Government officials will send in the police, try to uh, control the extent of the demonstrations and end up in many cases arresting or at least detaining some of the demonstrators who are angry with what China is doing in the South China Sea or other parts of Vietnam. Uh, A third main form has been petitions in which hundreds, sometimes thousands, tens of thousands of people sign online petitions addressed to government authorities asking, demanding that uh, the authorities become more protective of Vietnam and less accommodating to China. Many of these petition signers, they think that the Vietnamese authorities are too accommodating, too weak when it comes to dealing with China's aggressions against Vietnamese territory in the sea and even against Vietnamese territory on the land of Vietnam. So the anti-Chinese protests are very externally focused. And of course, the next chapter of the book, which deals with the democracy movement, is very internally focused. Can you tell us about the different phases of the pro-democracy movement and what factors fed into its trajectory? Yes, it started small scale in the late 1990s. A few people here and there, different parts of the country, starting to speak publicly in commentary on radio stations. Even in some authorized newspapers, they could slip in comments and uh, little essays. But then as uh, time went on and access to technology, the internet, uh, cell phones, 
grew and became quite prevalent in Vietnam by 2006, 2007, uh, more and more people got involved and they began to form little groups. And then sometimes those little groups grew into larger groups and they began publishing online newspapers and magazines filled with uh, events about what was going on in the emerging pro-democracy movement in Vietnam and about uh, actions that people were taking at different parts of the country. And also these newspapers and magazines had lengthy accounts of people's interactions with the government that they found distasteful or felt that they were being ripped off or unfairly treated. So these grew into not highly organized organizations, but different groups in different parts of the country that to some extent kept in contact with each other, but didn't develop into a large uh, unified effort. And then there developed some debate among people who were pushing for regime change, pushing for democratization as to how to go about it. One of the chapters identifies four approaches. One emphasizes that in order to democratize Vietnam, the Communist Party itself has to be involved. And there are critics within the party who would like Vietnam to become more democratic. And so the pro-democracy people argue that we should be working with the party and especially with those people within the party. So that was one approach. Another approach was what I call confrontational. They basically said no to that first approach and said, that'll never happen. The party's never going to change. We have to deal with it head on and form our own organizations, our own political parties, and confront them at every opportunity, even though the opportunities in Vietnam are still very, very limited. A third approach was, no, let's not confront the party, but engage the party where we can on little issues, bigger issues, and little by little begin to change how authorities deal with villagers, with workers, with pro-democracy people, have conversations, have some dialogue. And then there was a fourth group that basically emphasized, well, let's not focus very much on authorities per se, not confront them, not necessarily engage them. What we really need to do is to democratize ourselves. We need democracy as a practice, as a way of living. And they were emphasizing forming organizations and being democratic in those organizations, civil society groups, whether they're dealing with uh, sports or whether they're dealing with book clubs or whether it's dance organizations, or we need to learn how to do this. And gradually, democracy will take hold in society in Vietnam so that at that point, it'll be more possible for the political system to change as well. Then you note that the democracy movement, which is largely middle class, has significant overlaps with the anti-Chinese movement, but is quite divorced from movements of farmers and workers. Beyond the obvious class divide, is there something particular about the Vietnamese context that explains this? Uh, there is some interaction between the pro-democracy people and workers and the protests over land that are going on in the villages. But you're right, it's modest. And I think one reason for that is authorities themselves of the government and the Communist Party are very watchful, mindful, and they try to prevent too much of that kind of 
overlap or interaction between the pro-democracy critics, regime critics, and workers and, and villagers. And they can do that by monitoring. Uh, there's a pretty extensive intelligence network that's part of the government and the Communist Party in Vietnam, as, as uh, many other people have pointed out. So it's not for lack of interest on the part of the pro-democracy people or even on the part of the land protesters or the workers. I think it's largely a constraint of the political system, at, at least for the time being. For anti-China people and pro-democracy people, there's more overlap. And partly that's because it's happening to a large extent in the same geographical spaces in the cities, in the towns, so that it's easier for people to, to interact that way. The final substantive chapter deals with the treatment of dissidents. Two things struck me here. The first was that the inflated numbers of incarcerations in the period between 2005 and 2009. And the second was your observation that sentences for the same offences varied quite a lot. What do you think these kinds of insights tell us about the state? Well, the state is now and was then over those last uh, three decades or so has been trying to figure out how to deal with the pro-democracy people and others who are pushing hard for regime change. There was a time, and one of the chapters talks about this back in the 50s, when there was some dissent, uh, but it was nipped in the bud very quickly by the authorities in northern Vietnam in the late 50s. Uh, when this more recent regime criticism started in the late 90s and grew in the 2000s, the government couldn't contain it because the political economic situation in Vietnam had changed significantly, in part by the very doing of the party and the state itself. Market economy was kicking in in the 1980s and through the 1990s. People were less tied to the state through their work, through their housing and other aspects of their lives. They were more autonomous. And by being more autonomous economically, they became more autonomous in terms of what they could do, what they could say, and how they could go about saying things. And then you have the technological transformation of communication through the cell phones and the internet that I mentioned earlier. So the state really couldn't control the growing discontent, unlike what they were able to do very quickly in the 1950s. So given that situation, authorities have been debating, uh, discussing among themselves, how do we deal with this? We can't just come in and arrest everybody. That would create other problems and probably even worse problems. It would also make it more difficult for Vietnam to continue to have expansive relationships with countries around the world. It's one of their main foreign policy goals since the early 1990s. Uh, so smashing people left and right who are critical of the government, it would undermine their efforts to have good relations with democracies in the world. They've been trying to deal with protesters and uh, pro-democracy people in ways that are more nuanced. And the arrests go in cycles. Hard to predict why. Uh, one of the explanations has to do with who are the primary leaders at the time. In the last three or four years, there's been an uptick in numbers of people arrested and in prison, just like there was an uptick 
in uh, 2009, was it, that, that that occurred? And the fluctuations seem to have some bearing on who is calling the shots at the highest levels of the government and of the party. And then, of course, that pattern of opening and repressing again is something we see in many other Southeast Asian countries. A key feature of this book is its insights into biographies of particular activists and the argument that they as individuals have made. If you were to pick one activist whose contribution has been particularly notable, who would it be and why? Uh, I guess I would pick a fellow named Winton Quang Ah. Quang Ah is um, very widely known in Vietnam. He's very outspoken, very articulate, and He's not only well-known among uh, various types of critics, whether they be laborers or people protesting over land or people protesting on environmental issues, as well as the pro-democracy people. He's also known and to a degree respected by authorities. I've heard this not from him, but from some officials his critics, because they're part of the system and they're trying to protect the system, but they respect him for his truthfulness in the sense that he tries to back up what he's saying and he's not just making slogans. He often marshals evidence. And also he's polite. One official told me that he disagrees with us, but he does it in a very mild, modest, low-keyed manner. So Quang Ah is illustrative of a person who is, has his eye on the long haul, I think. Democratization, regime change is not going to happen quickly, but he's content with that. But he's only content if he can keep trying to encourage democratic behavior in all walks of life. And he can continue to write about it, speak about it, and help form petitions, which he's often involved in, and help encourage people to sign these petitions on China, on land, on various other topics. Well, that's a great place to take a little break and hear from our sponsors. When we come back, we'll step back and discuss some of the more overarching themes of the book. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's seasiainstitute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies. We're talking to Ben Kirkfleet about his new book, Speaking Out in Vietnam. This book is essentially an argument for nuance, for recognition of the complicated ways in which authoritarian regimes work. What do you think serious considerations of these nuances brings to our understanding of Vietnam, but also to our understanding of one-party states more generally? I'm hoping that readers will see that the way Vietnam is often portrayed in uh, the ordinary media, even in uh, among academics, uh, in uh, discussions that occur in many government settings, that portrayal is not very accurate. That portrayal often depicts Vietnam as very, very repressive, one of the most repressive regimes in the world, according to some human rights organizations. And the book is trying to say, yes, there is repression, but the Vietnamese political system 
the Communist Party in particular doesn't rule only through repression. It also rules through listening, through taking on board some of the criticisms that people have made, whether it's over land or working conditions or what have you, so that there's a kind of uh, interaction, a dialogue, I call it, between the people, citizens, groups of people, organizations, and government authorities at local and higher levels. And I think the argument for that kind of appreciation of a combination of repression and responsiveness in understanding Vietnam is applicable to other authoritarian one-party systems. Probably not the same combination necessarily, but the phenomenon of repression and responsiveness, of listening as well as being (laughs) harsh to critics, probably exists in lots of one-party systems, and particularly countries like China, which has a communist party, like in Vietnam. There are researchers who are are pointing out the uh, importance of uh, responsive listening type of behavior, toleration for the continuation, longevity of single-party systems. That kind of behavior of taking on board some of what critics and detractors say is important probably for the survival of the regime and the people that are trying to protect it. So I think there is a an argument here that travels beyond Vietnam itself. Yeah, I certainly agree with that. A related theme is the role of appeals to the state. This is something that really resonated with me because they were also common in New Order Indonesia. It also raised a number of questions, though. The first of these is about the extent to which you think these kind of appeals were a rhetorical advice, or do they really reflect a real sense of betrayal? Yes, this is particularly pronounced in uh, the pro-democracy people when they say the government should live up to the ideal of freedom of speech and uh, freedom of assembly, things that are supposedly protected in the constitution of Vietnam, or when villagers say that authorities should listen to the people be responsive to people who are claiming that the land is unfairly taken. These are things that they say, you you leader X, Y, and Z are saying this is what you do, but you're not practicing it. So those kinds of appeals to how things are supposed to be based on the law or what the authorities themselves have said is important and does resonate with the authorities themselves, but of course, they don't necessarily uh, agree with the pro-democracy people who say they have freedom of assembly. Authorities will turn around very likely and say, yeah, but you didn't follow the necessary procedures to get permission to assemble or something like that. And of course, that's a very common strategy as well. But my question before was really about the perspective of the protesters themselves. Do they just understand that this is a good strategy or do they really feel betrayed by the state? Probably a combination. Uh, It is a strategy, but there is a sense of betrayal. And I'm thinking particularly on the part of the protesters involved in many of these land issues. As the book mentions, a number of these protesters over land feel like the government has betrayed them in that these farmers fought for Vietnam's independence 
in the war against the United States and for uniting the country. Their ancestors fought for the government, for Vietnam, against the French. And here you are, authorities, taking our land that we ourselves or our forebears fought to keep by siding with the party, with the government, against the French, against the Americans, against a divided Vietnam. So there's a real sense of outrage and a sense of moral right, given this history of relations between the authorities and and the people. This is a really interesting point, and it also makes me think about the comparison of the farmers and workers' movements. I mean, as you observe, many of the striking workers are located in foreign-owned factories, and the farmers have targeted the state more directly. Do you think this has made a difference in the state's response to these different forms of protest? Most of the strikes and uh, related protests in the labor sector have been in foreign-owned or partly-owned, they call them joint venture factories. Uh, Some have been in private Vietnamese-owned factories. I can't uh, right now say that there's a difference in how the government deals with those protest strikes that take place in foreign-owned versus private-owned. I don't think there's a big difference. What the government can do and does, as I argue in the book, frequently criticize big owners, the large corporations, for not following labor laws in Vietnam as to how much people should be paid, how many hours they can work, and blame a lot of the discontent of the workers on the owners of the factories and the managers in those factories. And presumably this would be quite different for state-owned enterprises. Yes, but even in state-owned enterprises, the authorities above the enterprise itself can say, as they have, look, these people are striking because the enterprise, according to its own regulations, is supposed to be doing A, B, and C, but they're not doing it. And that's why the workers are angry. So the authorities can point to violations on the part of the state-owned enterprise managers. That's a really interesting observation because I do think that sets Vietnam apart from some of the capitalist, overtly capitalist regimes in the region. Another issue about these appeals to the state that really struck me was the example you gave of city officials in Ho Chi Minh City suggesting that the anti-Chinese marches are being used by enemies of Vietnam. Again, as an Indonesianist, this made me think about the New Order's invocation of what we call pihak ketiga, or third parties. How effective is this kind of othering as a strategy for shifting the public focus? The typical other that Vietnamese authorities will suggest protesters are in league with or have some kind of connection to are the Vietnamese overseas uh, who have they themselves or their parents or other relatives have once been part of the southern government based in Saigon and was fighting against the communist-led government based in Hanoi during the 50s and into 1975. So these overseas Vietnamese are often said by the government in Vietnam to be orchestrating or involved in disgruntlement and unrest that takes place in Vietnam, whether it's a 
not so much in terms of the land and labor issues, but in terms of regime criticism or even uh, the China issues. It has some traction. Uh, I'm sure there are some people in Vietnam that believe that. Uh, there are probably some people in Vietnam who are still sympathetic to the former government headquartered in Saigon, the South Vietnamese government. But as years and decades have gone by since 1975, that group of people in Vietnam is probably fairly small. In terms of more general population, I don't think the Vietnamese government's blaming foreigners, particularly foreign Vietnamese, on the events in Vietnam carries too much weight. But it does put a crimp on how organizations that are, say, pro-democracy in nature in Vietnam can operate. Uh, there's a hesitancy, a wariness to have any kind of dealings with the Vietnamese who are living in Sydney or Melbourne or Paris or other parts of the world for fear that the government, once they can actually document such a connection, will really use that as a weapon against the critics. Another important theme in the book is the importance of situating our assessment of the current situation in an understanding of the, what came before. A key point here is the introduction of the market economy. Could you explain to our listeners why this mattered so much? Yes, well, before the gradual introduction of the market economy starting in the late 80s, and after unification of the two parts in 1975. So after 75 until the late 80s, the government of Hanoi tried to regulate many, if not all, aspects of the economy. Pricing of goods, uh, the marketing of goods, who made what and where, collective farming as opposed to family farming, and so forth. And so people were quite, they didn't necessarily go along with it entirely or totally embrace it, but uh, it did affect people's living conditions. As I mentioned a little bit ago, your housing, your work, your schooling, your health care, uh, many aspects of your life were connected to this fairly controlled and regulated economic situation. The economy by the late 70s and well into the 80s was not working very well at all. Officials were realizing this. Food was scarce. The money was scarce. People were living in hovels. Something had to give. And what eventually happened was a realization on the part of higher authorities that the whole centralized economic system that they were trying to build was not going to work, at least for the time being. And so they backed away and let people produce and exchange goods on their own. Land was returned to farming households rather than collective farming system. Enterprises began to become based on uh, local capitalists, people who had some money to invest. Vietnam's borders were open to allow foreign investment. And as this happened, this gave a lot more freedom for people to move around, to feed themselves, to prosper, to send their kids to school, uh, and so forth. To travel was a big factor. And as all of that was happening, the uh, sources of information were also 
changing. People had more money so they could begin to subscribe to different radio and TV stations in different parts of the world. And then that graduated into the internet and cell phones and so forth. So having more opportunity for different sources of information affected also what people were able to think and do and economic adventures they could get involved in and activities they could become part of. So the marketization of the economy and the effects it had on many aspects of life was a huge change for Vietnam. And uh, it had its uh, downsides. Yes, people will complain now about poverty, growing inequality, uh, growing competition, which creates some stress and strain in people's lives. So there are some negative aspects. People would say in the past, well, we didn't have these problems because we were all poor. We didn't have inequality. We had everybody basically in the same miserable boat. And the people I've talked to and public opinion type of survey information indicates that people would rather have the problems of today than the problems that they had back in the 60s and 70s. Ben, you end the book with several caveats on your observations do and do not mean for our understanding of the current situation in Vietnam. Perhaps I could finish by asking you now whether you are more or less optimistic about the future. In terms of the pro-democracy movement, I'm not as optimistic as I was in the 2012-2013 because there has been an up uh, more people who are outspoken advocating regime change who have been harassed, and arrested, and put in prison for lengthy periods, 10, 15 years in some cases. So that's very disappointing. I think the pro-democracy efforts will continue but probably at a lower scale. Some of the newspapers and magazines that were being published online that I mentioned earlier have had to shut down because of uh, efforts on the part of the government to arrest or intimidate their editors and people who were involved in it. So that's a disappointment, but I don't think it's going to end. I think it's in sort of semi-hibernation and will come back as time goes on. For other things, uh, labor continues. I think uh, labor movement uh, probably is emerging in a way that is quite different from where it was 10 years ago. There seems to be some opening on the part of the government to allow independent labor organizations. They may still have to have some kind of connection to the official one, but will have more latitude, more uh, opportunity to move on their own. Land has become less of a controversial issue in recent years, partly because of the consequences that those demonstrations earlier have had, the positive consequences. Uh, Land laws have been adjusted uh, in 2013-2014, making it more difficult for local authorities to confiscate land for purposes of urbanization or uh, building of factories and so forth. They have to take more precautions, more steps, and pay and do a better job of compensating the people whose lands will be lost to urbanization. And that's a consequence of efforts in the past and the the authorities changing the law. Environmental, I don't, the book doesn't talk about environmental protests, 
but there have been many in Vietnam and in several parts of the country that too as the government have been taking more steps to make the economy i guess you'd call it more green take into account more the importance of global climate change and what vietnam needs to do to get away from carbon based uh, electricity and and the like so i'm optimistic on a number of way in a number of uh, sectors of the, how things are going that the role of public opinion and public commentary and protest will remain important and uh, how the state deals with it will probably continue to be a combination of repression yes but also being tolerant and and responsive to uh, some of it ben i think that's a great place to stop thank you so much for joining us to discuss your book speaking out in vietnam thank you very much i hope it's useful thank you you've been listening to new books in southeast asian studies a podcast channel on the New Books Network. If you've enjoyed this episode, you can find conversations about hundreds of Southeast Asia-related books on the channel. You can download or stream these interviews free of charge from the New Books Network website or subscribe through your favourite podcast app. 